Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Dr. Alicia Clark is an expert on anxiety. She is a licensed practicing psychologist who has worked with hundreds of patients and has studied anxiety's impact for more than 25 years. Washingtonian Magazine named her one of Washington's top doctors. And more recently, Dr. Clark has written a terrific book. I highly recommend it. It's called Hack Your Anxiety, How to Make Anxiety Work for You in Life, Love, and All That You Do. What a remarkable thesis and title. You know, as we think about what's going on in the world, given concerns about economic and global security and a highly, highly polarized political environment and and also a pace of life that is just exponentially faster than what past generations experienced. It is no wonder that so many people feel anxious. So I can't think of a better time to have this Mm. conversation. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Alicia Clark. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. That's such a privilege to be here today talking about this. So happy to have you. I am a big, big fan of the book. Mm. Before we get into the meat of the book, let's level set. When we talk about anxiety, what are we talking about? Well, It's a good question because not everybody knows how to define anxiety necessarily. It it starts out as an emotion. It it is an emotion. It can be a disorder if there's too much of an emotion that it gets in your way. That's true of anything. It becomes a disordered situation, a disordered experience. But anxiety starts out as an emotion that's there to deliver us information about the things that we care about and also give us the energy we need to do something about the thing that's being signaled to us. When do you know that it's a problem, that you're having a problem with anxiety? That may sound Mm -hmm. like a silly question, but at what point does it become problematic? Well, I think that's different for everybody because it sort of depends on how you think about anxiety. If anxiety feels scary to begin with, if any sort of turn in your stomach or any um, whispering worry feels uncomfortable, you're more likely to maybe think of it as a problem immediately. Whereas for people who might think of anxiety as a tool to help tune them into the things they care about or the things they have forgotten about or... Um, the things on their mind to focus them, any of those things, they tend not to think of anxiety as much of a problem. But it is true that no matter how you define anxiety, when you have too much stress, too much anxiety, and it and it overtakes you to the point that you're not doing anything about it, and and it feels like it's feeding on itself, that is too much anxiety. We can all agree that too much is too much. But a moderate amount is really good for us and it helps us be at our best and that research has been around since 1920 and it keeps getting replicated it's something called the yerkes dodson curve Um, it's an upside down u-curve and it it really says that moderate stress and anxiety are correlated with our highest and best productivity that that we're really at our best when we've got kind of a little edge to what we're doing. So interesting, so interesting. So kind of walk me through what that might look like. Uh, Give me 
sort of an example or a day in the life of Mm -hmm. how you hear that anxiety, you hear those Mm -hmm. whispers, Mm -hmm. to use your words, Mm -hmm. and how you know sort of what a healthy level is and how you should react to that. One thing that comes to mind just because I'm in the moment here is that there's a big microphone in front of us. That, and you're so, Oh, that. Oh, that. And, and we're really close to each other. And, and I'm, I'm aware of, of, of the, the, the logistics of talking about this and the distraction of, of this microphone. So it's not the most comfortable conversation but it actually might be a better conversation and it might be a more thoughtful conversation and I might do a better job of thinking through how to explain what you're asking than if we were just sitting in a, in a lounge chair having a glass of wine together. It just might not quite be as good. So, so that's like the most immediate answer. Um, you know, it, it, I think we all know this experience of being under a deadline, of having to perform, of just worrying about somebody or or something in our life that we care about, health issues, politics, uh, climate change. I just you know right. so many things. Oh, uh, it's so many things to worry about and and really keep thinking about. And that that is not a bad thing for us to be letting our mind get to these questions and these concerns that we have because the more we think about it. If we think about it towards a solution, that's a big caveat. If we think about it towards a solution, the more the more forward we are in the progress of doing something about it. Mm. Last night I was thinking about climate change. I was reading the article. I, I don't know what I read, but it was so it was so alarming, and it had me thinking. Okay, what are we not doing in our house? What am I not doing that I could do differently? Um, how can I get more into action around this thing that I really care about? What are the things that I could be doing differently? That's, that's a great example of just using anxiety to fuel small changes. And when we do that, it goes away. It flares up, it gets our attention, it asks us to pay attention and, and gets us motivated to do something. And when we get into action, it calms down. So you've been practicing for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. What what's changed as it relates to what you see in anxiety in your patients? What's been your experience? My experience is that we are more anxious. We are getting we have more things to worry about. We we have more information. We're in the information age. You know, it's been in our lifetimes that certainly in mine that, you know, I didn't do my dissertation with email. There was right. no email. <laughs> so it's a long time ago, and yet it wasn't that long ago. So we have, we have access to so much more information. There's so many things that we care about. That, I think, is driving a lot of the extra anxiety that we feel. I also think we're more educated. I think we know what we're, we're understanding more about mental health. We're understanding more about the things we should uh, worry about, the things we should watch for. Um, we've done an excellent job of educating the public on on signs and symptoms of fill in the blank. Um, and we're frankly pretty worried about it. We're, we're aware and we get worried about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's 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 a bit of, of what I'm seeing is that there is more anxiety, but we're also a bit more afraid of anxiety than we ever have been before because we do, you know, we've done an excellent job of telling people stress hurts you mm-hmm. and anxiety hurts you. And actually, the research really doesn't bear that out. There's some 
very compelling large-scale studies that bear out that it's not stress or anxiety that hurts us. It's how we think about it that makes the difference. Let's dig into that a bit because you spend a lot of time in the book, which was Mm -hmm. really what I loved about it, Mm. talking about this notion when you become afraid of the anxiety that that's when it becomes problematic. So talk a bit more about that notion. Yeah, well, it's when we become afraid of anything, it hurts more. So we can be ready to have our blood drawn. And if we decide that, oh my God, it's gonna be horrible, we are gonna tense up all of our muscles and 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 it is gonna hurt more. And likely the person isn't gonna be able to get what they need and they might have to <laughs> stick us twice. <laughs> um, so it's not just anxiety about anxiety. I call it secondary anxiety. It's anxiety about any experience. You could be anxious about being sad and you'll be sadder. Mm-hmm. Um, but in particular, when it comes to anxiety, when we get when we get worried about how anxious we're feeling, we can push ourselves all the way to panic. And this is what happens when people panic: is they have they feel the anxiety coming. They they're they're not it's not comfortable. They don't they don't want to feel this way. They might be confused about what's happening in their body, but they get scared. And the minute we get scared and we think, oh, no, 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 I don't want to feel this. No, no, I can't feel this. We, we really ratchet up our autonomic fear response. And we push ourselves into fight or flight. And, and fight or flight, when you're not fighting or, mm-hmm. or flighting, um, turns into panic. It, yeah. it, it can be panic. And this is not, it, 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 that is a great example of the kind of anxiety that's really not helpful and the secondary anxiety when we get afraid of our experience that's when we really push it into something that's not going to be as easy for us to manage or use um, effectively so a first sort of clarion call is try not to be afraid of your anxiety it's really there trying to help you doesn't mean it can't get out of whack sometimes and it doesn't mean that all of us ought to walk around with a pit in our stomach or not being able to sleep or uh, you know, the, the, the many ways that anxiety can sort of impact us in an unhealthy way. But it does mean that, that if we're afraid of it, we're going to make it worse. And, and turning into it and trying to listen to what it's, what it's signaling to us, what, what we're feeling that we need to pay attention to rather than turning away from it, that is what I've found really makes the difference in terms of managing and using anxiety constructively. Yeah, it's a very empowering concept because it's enabling you to take control back, which exactly. is oftentimes part of the problem is that you feel out of control and that makes you feel more anxious, or at least I should speak for myself, it makes me feel more Absolutely. anxious when I'm yep. out of control and have too many things to do. You talk about this notion of busyness mm. in the book, which I thought was really mm. interesting. Talk a bit more about what you mean by that and why that can exacerbate maybe this tendency toward anxiety. Mm on this idea of so many things that come across our consciousness every day and so many things that are on our mind and so many things that we think about all the time, um, they don't come in in an organized way and they don't tend to come in in a prioritized way. When we're, when we're 
when we're stressed enough, when we have enough on our plate, we stop being able to sort things. I know that's true for me. I stop being able to tell the difference between something that's maybe not so important and something that is pretty important. That just all feels like it's got to get done or it all feels like it's got to be thought about. Um, and one of the things that I notice in people when I sit down and talk to them, I certainly notice in myself, is that when I when I tune into what really gets me activated, what what I really care about the most, that helps me sort all the data. Mm-hmm. So my anxiety, when I what I worry about, what I feel stressed about, if I can ask myself, what do I really care about? Like what's really bothering me here? What's that thing that I know I need to do, I haven't been doing it? Like when I'm brave enough to recognize that, and actually activate on that thing rather than the other things that might be the lower hanging fruit, the easier things to do but aren't as important, that anxiety really starts to calm down. Can you give me an example? The thing that's like really on my mind is is my next book project. Ah. Like what is what should that be? Mm-hmm. And and how easy it is to get distracted by so many other things um, that need to get done and not carve out the space to really be thinking about that. But that's what that's what I wake up thinking about. And that's what when I am rested and, and have time, though, that's where my mind wants to go. And that soothes the anxiety of, okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. But it's not easy to do. It's not it's not always easy to activate on those things because there are a lot more things to do. I don't have the answers necessarily. I mean, there are plenty of other things too. But when I look at what are the things I worry about the most, that does help me. That does help me sort yeah. and and focus on what's most important. Yeah. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I found that people came in afraid of their anxiety over and over and over. And what I noticed was that a lot of times they weren't worried about things that were irrational. They were worried about things they should be worried about. They were worried about being maybe in the wrong job. They were worried about being lonely. They were worried about their the quality of their friendships or their relationships. But they were spooked about how anxious they were feeling. And what I found myself doing over and over was saying, you know what, let's just think about this a little differently. Maybe you ought to be worried about these things. All of these things sound really reasonable to be worried about. And as we just tuned into the 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 anxiety and, and saw it as something that wasn't irrational, they felt better. They felt better and it and it went away. It tended to go away at least at the beginning at that point. And then the more we talked about it and, and, and helped sort of activate on the things they cared about, that really made a difference too. So I went looking for a book. All right, well, okay, let me find a book that's, that's talking about anxiety in this way. There's got to be one. No, there, there wasn't one. Like everything out there was sort of was repeating the same message of anxiety is irrational. You need to learn how to calm. You need to learn how to... Um, and, and that's not untrue. Too much anxiety is too much. But not all anxiety is bad. And when we think that way, we're, we actually set ourselves up to be more anxious. So I didn't set out to write a book, but I found myself I found myself um, inspired too. And it's really a labor. It's a labor of love and, and a hope that it can help more people than just the few that I get to see in my office. Because this is the She Said, She Said 
podcast. Can we talk a bit about any differences that you see between men and women as it relates to this topic? You and I had a minute to talk uh, beforehand, and the science is not as conclusive as what we would imagine it to be. Right. So let's talk about maybe what you see, even anecdotally. I was telling you earlier, I do get asked a lot about this um, from journalists. There is this sort of I think there's this thought that as women, we may feel anxiety more, um, we may be more prone to it, but I don't think we're more prone to mental health issues necessarily. I think as women, the way our brain is structured, at least one thing that everybody can agree on is we do a better job of translating around our brain than, than men do. What does that mean? That means there is a middle part of our brain called the corpus callosum that, that connects the right side of our brain to the left side of our brain. And the different sides of our brain are understood to do different things. So the right brain is more emotional, the left brain is typically more verbal. Mm-hmm. Um, women having a thicker middle part are, when you can look at their brain functioning, they tend to use both sides of their brain more than men do. Men can really focus on one or the other. They can sometimes hyper-focus us out Mm -hmm. in terms of that. But women can use more of their brain. So that means in, in practice, I think, and in my experience, we have a, um, we have a more fluid relationship often with our emotions and we talk more. We tend to have have an ability to talk to other people easier than, than men do. And I think when it comes to anxiety, we, we might feel more because we may have a combination of thoughts and feelings and, and do that dance more in our brain than, than men do. Because we're more willing to talk about these things, it may be that that we have a sense that that we experience it more. I was telling you earlier, I see almost as many men as I see women, right. and so that notion uh, of stigma is not really yeah, true in this case. It's not. I, um, you know, and I think just in our gender politics, we're really we're 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 in some exciting change here in terms of just rethinking all of these sorts of differences around. Have you seen a shift in that in terms of, you know, we, we talked, uh, and this is what you're alluding to, um, whether women are more likely to seek help for anxiety than men, and you say that, that your practice is pretty, is pretty balanced. Was that always the case when you first started out? Have you seen any difference in the, the last 25 years? Oh, I will say I've seen more men now than I used to. Mm. So for sure there is, there, there is a trend there, um, at least in my practice. I think in general we're becoming a lot less stigmatized around getting help. And men and women together who are, who are mindful around wanting to be happier and wanting to live a fuller, richer life, um, if they can find the courage, they come and 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 get help, which I think is terrific. We we all we all should and and can um, when we need these when we need this help in our life. Yeah. So I think that's I have definitely seen that that change. One of the other things that strikes me too, and because we talk about this on the podcast a lot, and is that we see women behave in a way that oftentimes they are harder on themselves than men are. They go, you know, they ask for a promotion, they're turned down. It becomes something that oftentimes 
we as women will personalize in a way that a man might say, oh, well, just wrong for the job, he moves on. Mm -hmm. And she may be much more inclined to personalize it. And so I'm curious, again, it is not every, not every woman does this. This is not true in every mm -hmm. case. Some men take it very seriously. But generally speaking, I hear a lot more about women that take criticism, feedback to heart and more personally than men do. And I'm right. curious as to whether there's a link between that maybe and anxiety. I, you know what, I think you're right about this. And I'm thinking about the... Um, I'm thinking about the Confidence Code, mm. that terrific book. Yeah, and Claire was on. Claire Shipman was oh, on an earlier episode of the podcast. Oh, um, she's it's fantastic. a great book, and their data that they draw on is also so strong and so concerning for moms of girls. Mm -hmm. And I have I have a daughter that something happens in adolescence where girls tend to pull away from competition, and boys don't tend to pull away as much. Um, that girls more uh, prioritize more their relationships and being liked than perhaps boys do, and because of that, they tend not to compete. And in in pulling away from competition, mm -hmm. the thinking is this could explain how women have a harder time competing and feeling the confidence that their male counterparts do. And I mean, there were some brilliant anecdotes in the book, you know, how men just figure out, well, it's not, it just wasn't my thing and, and that's fine. And women might, you know, go over and over and over looking for perfection right. before they'll be willing to step in. We can be more cautious. We can be more more careful. And, 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 and that can get in our way sometimes. And, and their their anthropologists will say as women, you know, we're the nurturers, we're the caretakers, we're the ones that have to protect, protect the cubs, we have to protect our young. And so we, we're not out spearing our food, we're not, we're not na as naturally drawn to do that, we tend to, to tend and befriend, which is another interesting uh, stress response that was that was added to the fight or flight stress response in reference to how as women in particular, women in particular are drawn to protecting under stress. Mm -hmm. So this can be a great thing. You know, we're, we're, we're socialized to do this and we're excellent at maintaining our connections and, our, and, and taking care of people and things. But we don't always think about ourselves and putting ourselves out there or feeling the confidence that that we need to to go do the thing that we need to do and that can and that can produce anxiety and can you know it's a chicken and egg thing sure. with anxiety it can be a result of anxiety it can produce anxiety i definitely think that they're that they're related and in this sort of broad strokes gender difference mm -hmm. way yeah let's shift and talk about what do we do right? Mm -hmm. we, we're experiencing anxiety, we're feeling a bit out of control. What are some of the tips and advice that you offer in the book to help us make that pivot, to help us sort of recognize, okay, it's a tool, here's how I can use it to my advantage? I'd say the most important thing to remember is that you're in control. We know from the data on studying all sorts of people under anxiety that that the experience of not being in control, the experience of something happening to us 
rather than something that we're doing for ourselves is replicated over and over to be an anxiety producing experience. And this can be little things I would imagine like having something thrown on your calendar that you hadn't planned for that day or you know you get thrown curveballs all day long right so it can Mm -hmm. be little stuff. Right it could be your kid saying hey can you help me with my internship selection that I need to do in an hour? (laughs) I forgot my knee pads for whatever sport. That's right exactly it could be any of those things yes Um, you're we're never in control of the ask we're seldom in control of the ask or maybe the stressor but we're absolutely in control of what we do with it and that's not new information we know that we're in control of how we respond to requests and asks what I think is particularly helpful when it comes to anxiety is that we're in control of our attitude we're in control of how we think about our experience so In the weeds of anxiety of, oh, this is really uncomfortable, I don't like how this feels, if we let ourselves go down that path of, I don't like how this feels, this is bad, we will not be able to use our anxiety as constructively as if we can instead say, oh, this is anxiety, pretty uncomfortable, would rather not be feeling it right now, but I'm going to remember that this is that this is energy and this is focus. And we do know from a neurological perspective mm-hmm. that is what anxiety is doing for us. It's focusing our attention. It's giving us energy. And this uncomfortable friend is going to keep me focused on what I need to do. And it's going to keep reminding me that if I don't do what I need to do, it's going to just not go away. Yeah. So recognizing that it's that it can be a good thing and seizing how it can be a good thing is going to help it not be a problem. It's going to really help it stay as constructive as possible. So that's like my number one thing. So remember you're in control and, and really the specifics of control is how you think about anxiety really matters. Yeah. I'm struck by a, a parallel, at least I feel this, I don't know if you do, but, but um, Carol Dweck's um, great research on mindset, mindset. how you mm-hmm. think about failure and setback. I just see this great parallel between what you're saying and a lot of her research in that regard, because that's really what you're talking about. That it's- is the research. I mean, the the research that's coming out of positive psychology, and it's just coming out in droves, over and over replicates the power of our mindset, of our attitude, of how we think about something, how we think about a trauma, how we think about, you know, at, the, at its most extreme, how we think about our our minute experience, how we think about a setback, how we think about happiness, mm-hmm. how we think about our future, how we think about our past. All of that can really make a material difference in how we experience it. And I'll tell you whose research was the most exciting to find. There is this great book by Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made. And she takes, she pretty much takes the science of positive psychology and she gets in the weeds of what actually happens in our brain when we have an emotion. Mm. And she she demonstrates that it's not just that we feel something and then we how we think about it afterwards will help. She actually shows that how we interpret everything around us is the starting place then we feel and how we feel reflects how we perceive what it is that's going on but also how we perceive our experience in the moment. Interesting. And why that to me is so startling and so empowering is that 
you know, when I was trained 20 years ago, the cognitive psychology piece was emotions are emotions. We don't, we, there's nothing we can really do about emotions. We need to value them because they're important. And we need to change how we think about emotions sort of on the back end. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can cope with our emotions. And that is all still true. But what the science now is showing us is that it's not just how we think about our emotions on the back end. We actually have control about how we feel something on the front end, which is about if I can think about this discomfort I'm having as something either positive and more neutral, like I'm just a little uncomfortable, this is that anxious friend keeping me on task, or we could be like, really uncomfortable up in front of a big crowd and instead of deciding that we are anxious and worried we decide we're excited and there's excellent research out there that if we just decide that we feel excited we do better and we've seen this in students who've been told either to calm down when they take a test or to get excited Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, the kids that are told to get excited outperform the kids told to calm down over and over. So this idea that we can actually control our experience at the beginning of how we perceive things or perceive things, or at least as soon as we clue in to we're having an emotion and this is and we're engaging in it, we can really take control. And that's super cool. It's really cool. It's really cool. It's a very empowering concept. Very empowering. And when we know that anxiety is is so much the experience of being out of control, Mm -hmm. to me, this delivers a way to help people be in control. How early can we start with our children at helping them understand these concepts? So glad you asked that question. As soon as you think about it. One of the things I really I really find myself saying over and over is that our kids and our own emotional vocabulary is really the building block here of being able to understand and use our emotions. We can't do what we're talking about right now if we if we can't label our feelings or even know what it means to have a feeling. One of the first things I wrote was a um, ebook on which is a, a a toolkit of emotions just literally emotional words categorized by their theme and then by severity because what i find in working even with adults is that sometimes they couldn't lay they they can't label their emotions they haven't had practice with it we don't learn this in school most of us in our families i know i wasn't taught to you know let's talk about our feelings and i'm not saying that it has to be like super woo woo like that it's just all of us deserve to have this language and this ability to access our emotions. It's a hugely important information source. And we know how important emotional intelligence is. And I don't think it's ever too early to get our kids talking about how they feel and, and modeling for them what a feeling is and, and what it means and maybe even nudging them. Okay, well, you feel really scared, but do you also feel a little excited? Do you also, maybe you just feel uncomfortable or you may be hungry? You know, that kind of thing that all of us as parents do. Mm-hmm. But to notice and make it obvious in the conversation as kids get old enough to sort of have insight about their bodies. To me, it's no different than noticing, you know, do you you need to take a shower? Do you need to brush your teeth? Do you need to talk about your feelings? 
Is there something going on that you need to talk about? Because we do know that talking about it is what helps us sort the feelings that we, when, insofar as emotions are on the right side of the brain mm-hmm. and verbalizing is on the left side of the brain, mm-hmm. we know that talking about our emotions actually turns on more of our brain. Mm-hmm. So the more we have working on an emotion, the more likely we are to be able to work it through. That's like a classic psychological term, working it through, but literally working with it. Yeah. Um, we need to talk about it to be able to work with it. So absolutely, as parents, I think, you know, don't be afraid to be the, you know, the feeling mom or the feeling dad and, and to get your kids talking about their emotions and model for them when you have emotions. Yeah. I mean, the best ones to practice on are the positive ones. They're just not threatening or the, you know, or even the negative ones mm-hmm. that, you know, kids need to know that we all feel scared sometimes and we all feel sad sometimes and we all feel angry and and they need to watch what we do with it. And when we can narrate that experience, we we just do a huge service for them. Yeah, I take my, well, both kids, but particularly our daughter, who's nine, I take her with me on public speaking engagements from time to time. And because I'm a very anxious speaker, generally. Really? <laughs> no, you it's don't ironic. Anxious. Well, I'm a yeah. little bit anxious. No, it's, you know, it's that daunting experience that you go it's through. It's a big deal. But I have started, because of, you know, work like yours mm. and others, I've started saying to her, you know, mommy feels really nervous, but mommy's telling herself that she's actually really excited. And I want you to remember this Yay. when you have yeah. an opportunity to do something at school. And I, you know, a lot of times That's we so tell great. our kids stuff That's and so it's great. like, oh, it's just going right over their heads. But when I hear her parrot some of this back to me, you know, it's a it's just an indication that that role modeling and trying to be more authentic with our own emotions, maybe, Absolutely. as we're talking to them. And you're making a difference and you're helping her have that language and build that language and that insight and into her own experience. right? Getting yeah. sort of comfortable with the idea that some of these experiences, even though you, you want to do them and need to do them, you're not always going to be comfortable doing it. Well, right? that's another profound point is that we really are building resilience. You know, we're really looking at cultivating resilience around just discomfort. And these are all ways to tolerate and understand that you can handle being uncomfortable. You can even handle being miserable. Sometimes those are the moments that, that are the catalysts to change. Mm-hmm. You know, even going back to Darwin, that anxiety, why, why would we change if we didn't have to? Like we are, we are wired for automaticity. We actually don't like new things. We don't like to have to alter our ways. We do not like to have to, I mean, we do like learning if it's easy, but we really don't like being uncomfortable. We don't, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like and that's, that, sort of, that's human nature. That's human nature, and that's, and, and that's our, you know, I think that's our body sort of protecting its resources and protecting itself, really. That said, We've all had to adapt. I mean, we've, you opened with our changing landscape of our, I mean, we are in an exponential time of change and we are all having to adapt. Darwin would say that, and, and he did say, that anxiety pre- um, preceded every adaptive change. So anxiety with its focus and its energy, if you can, if we can harness it and think about, okay, what is it that I need to do with this? And we can get better at practicing taking those courageous first steps and then get better at changing. We get better at building new habits. We get better 
at adapting. We get better at growing alongside of the demands that are part of our world now. Yeah. I think it's part of the landscape. I, I don't think we're going back from this. Yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Okay, I want to pivot and talk about your personal story. Mm. So I was fascinated to read that you studied art history as an oh. undergraduate. <laughs> yeah. How did we get from mm. there to here? Mm. Well, uh, that was a question asked by many admissions officers <laughs> in schools I didn't get into, I'll say, for grad school. I, I found that if I was asked that question, generally they, you know, and with the exception, actually, of, of um, I remember my but, supervisor. But why? What was why? it about? You know, I didn't know what, all, all I knew about art was, it was, obviously it was beautiful, but it was also so interesting. What I found so fascinating about art history were the layers of meaning inside of every picture and not just the layers about the you know what the artist was trying to say in the story but also the connection to the culture the connection to history the connection to the tradition of that field and it was the most fascinating part were the different layers of meaning this was on the heels of having almost gone to music school. Like what I loved about music was harmony and, and, and how you could have a chord of a music and multiple notes that sounded one way and the next chord would be another way. And that within each, within each was, a, was a melody. There, there was a, a line, there, there was a melody to be sung or heard and together it made this music. What I know now that connects all of that to what I do now is that I sit and I listen and I know that we all experience so much of life on so many layers at all times. Like we can, Freud talked about the unconscious. I think we've, you know, there are many of his ideas that have stood the test of time and many that haven't. But his idea that a lot goes on in our mind and we just can't be aware of it all. Yeah, very much so. But the more we can be aware of, the more, the more deliberate and the more in control we can be. Mm -hmm. So this idea of all the different layers of meaning is something that, that I was interested in. I was also, I, I didn't want to go into art. I sort of, I had my internship. I thought, oh, I don't know that I want to sell art. What do I want to do? And I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I wanted to help people. I was sick as a kid, really sick, and was... Um, very helped by doctors. I mean, it really saved my life. And and I like I had always thought that's what I wanted to do, but freshman biology was really hard. <laughs> like um especially the genetics and the probabilities. It's like, "Oh, I don't think I could do this." And so it was, you know, it's actually in talking through with the career, you know, career counselor and getting getting clear on, all right, well, what are you interested in? Like, I was still interested in helping people. So then I went and I got a master's. Nobody asked any questions getting a master's. But they asked at the doctoral level, uh, what about this art history business? <laughs> um, it's taken a while to figure that out and see that. And I think... I think that's probably more reflective of people's experience than less so. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we all have so many interests. We have there's so much to be curious about, and picking one thing or one career forever is, well, right now we know that's really not likely. Right. We're much more likely to have many different things that we do in life. Um, but just to know that if you are willing to st to stick with what you're interested in and, and and what makes a day not feel like work, you'll find it. And I never feel like I work a day. 
I mean, I just, I love what I do. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm so lucky. I mean, I'm really lucky to have found something that I still really, really like. Yeah. So I've noticed that you do a lot more than many of your professional colleagues related to public speaking, publishing a blog. A lot of folks that are in your profession write books, but you have a very active Instagram. You do a lot more in terms of sharing your perspective across all these platforms. Talk about why you do that. Gosh, that's a great question. I ask myself that a lot because it is a lot of extra work. Sure. And But I do that because I know, I've well, I've learned it's not just about writing a book. Like you can write a book and that's great. And it's hard enough to do that to get to get the book in print. But getting it in hands of people that can use it mm-hmm. is probably more important mm-hmm. than writing the book. Even if you had a crummy book, getting it to people that can get something out of it actually, I think, is more important than writing a great book that nobody even knows exists. I will say it has caused quite a substantial amount of stress and a little anxiety, and it has also been really fun. Like every time I can think about, wow, this is really fun. It's fun to go to the the studio and re-record this chapter for a third time because it's better now than it was two times ago. And it actually is fun. Like, yeah. it's it's a treat to get to do new things when we get older and to just keep life interesting and stimulating. And you, but you did the audiobook yourself. And, and I think I was a little naive about that. I was naive in terms of how hard it was to actually narrate a book. I, I thought, how hard can it really be right. to read your book? And how hard? How, uh, it I, was I, hard. Really? It was Why? really, well, um, kind of brought me back to the music. It was a performance. These are these subtleties that are just so important because you can hear it immediately as a listener. Mm -hmm. And I just totally underestimated just the sheer talent of professional narrators. It was just important to me to have it be in my own words Mm -hmm. because I I do so much talking for a living. I just felt like I wanted to read my book. Such a pleasure to be with you. Um, oh, thank you. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice or a life hack. It can be related to what you do, the great advice that's in this book, or something else. What would be? What would that be for you? Nothing's wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with you. Anxiety means that you're a human being and that you care. And the more you care about, the more anxious you're going to be. If you can embrace that and know that nothing's wrong with you, it's there to help you. And tuning into it can be a great adventure and it just doesn't have to be that hard. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. (laughs) You can learn more about Dr. Alicia Clark and hacking anxiety on the She Said, She Said website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You can also follow us as well as Dr. Clark on Instagram. Uh, I'm at She Said, She Said with Laura Cox Kaplan. I'll be posting show notes from today's visit and they will include links to Alicia's website, to her book, as well as a few photos from today's visit. And of course, remember, here at She Said, She Said, you will always find incredibly insightful conversations like our conversation today with Alicia, inspiration, and women who are having a positive impact on the world every single day. As always, thanks so much for listening.